Hey, you guys. Esther chapter 3. There we go. What's going on, guys? Good morning. Um, Matt always sings, but sometimes he sings. You know what I'm saying? He was singing today. Good stuff, Matt. Um, Esther chapter 3. Before we get into our text, I do want to um, just publicly say thank you to Lindsay and her team for everything that took place this last Wednesday with our packing party. It's a year-long effort um, that does not happen by accident, but by hours and hours of hard work. And uh, once again, Lindsay did an awesome, awesome job with that. Coleman's going to talk about it more at the end. Um, and I was in the first service, Erin Brady was here, and she led and kind of did pretty much most of everything, her and Christy, um, for our fall festival last couple weeks ago. And uh, just thanked her for everything she did. It's two, those are two events that were led by people who are not staff. And it's a special thing for them to both go so well um, when staff's not involved. Usually in churches uh, of our size, you kind of go one way or the other. It's church does everything and staff's kind of hanging out. Or staff does everything and church's kind of hanging out. And our church has such a cool blend of um, staff leading and carrying the load. But then church members coming along and leading right beside them. So um, thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Aaron, for everything um, that took place with that. Esther chapter 3, Esther chapter 3, where we were in the book of Esther, chapter 2 ended well um, a couple weeks ago. um, I preached, I think last week, Coleman wrapped up his series last week, I preached two weeks ago. Um, We do have a couple guest speakers lined up for the next two weeks, um, and then Coleman's jumping into Esther chapter 4, and so he's going to be joining our series, which I'm excited about, to kind of get his perspective on some of this as well. So um, I've enjoyed Esther so far. Esther chapter 2 ended well, like I said. Uh, this is the story of the beauty pageant that took place. King Hasselware shows back up from an unsuccessful kind of um, war that didn't go the way he wanted to go. He shows up and he misses his girl. Uh, Queen Vashti was banished and he's like, dang, regret that. But he's like, I got to get a new one. So he does a year-long beauty pageant. I was talking to somebody this morning and uh, literally just these ladies went to the spa every day for a year. It says they were giving all these fragrances, all these things. And then, of course, we know that Esther is the victor of this pageant, and King Ahasuerus uh, rewards her, makes her queen. And uh, keep in mind also that he is not just, this is his one lady, he's got um, harems of women, both several different wives, several different concubines. Um, he, he's got his plethora, but Esther is now the queen. Um, Esther's made queen in chapter 2, and the story ends with another little side plot of Mordecai, kind of his... Uh, his moment of heroism to start the story where he is in the king's gate, he's doing his business, and he hears of a plot to kill King Hasawaris. And uh, he obviously, uh, I think there's a little bit of self-preservation in his intentions, there's a little bit of maybe he's a good guy, maybe he's trying to do what's right, but he hears this plot to kill uh, King Hasawaris. He's like, well, I, my, my cousin just became queen. I don't really want him to die right now. So he goes and saves King Hasawaris' life. He reports it to Esther and Esther to the king. They're kind of all earning favor in King Hasawaris, and the chapter ends. It's a good way to end it, right? It's a good way to end the chapter. Queen Esther, hero Mordecai. And uh, like we know from life, usually when things end well, they don't stay that way for too long. And uh, chapter 3 is really the introduction of Haman, our villain. Um, if, you were, if this was Esther was a play, this would be Act 1, last scene of Act 1, where all this good setup has happened and then a villain is introduced and uh, kind of the, the evil plot that he brings. And uh, we're going to pick up in, verse, in chapter 3, verse number 1. We're going to read the whole chapter, only 15 verses. Um, we're going to kind of work through it as we go. As we let's go ahead and read verse one, chapter three. And after these things, um, talking about the the Mordecai's pl- solution to the plot against King Ahasuerus, did King Ahasuerus promote Haman 
the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. This is the introduction of Haman. What's his race? The Agagite. Now, if you backtrack the Agagite people, you go all throughout the, the Old Testament. They were there back when Israel was first going through Canaan. These were the people of the Amalekites. This is the people that um, kind of a classic Israel enemy. Uh, the first kind of story we hear about them is they were they actually provoked Israel. Um, they attacked Israel, excuse me, unprovoked. This is a story of Joshua against the Amalekites where Moses was at the top of the rock holding his hands up. Um, the Lord was rewarding the nation of Israel for, for Moses holding his hands up, and they were winning the fight. When he put his hands down, they would begin to lose the fight. So he had to hold his hands up all day while they um, kind of destroyed the Amalekites. And you hear, obviously, Caleb and Hur coming alongside Moses, holding his hands up. Just a cool story there. And the Amalekites lose, and this is what moves. If you keep going throughout the history of um, of Israel, the Amalekites kind of pop up here and there. The other, um, kind of the last place where they're mentioned before this is in First um, Samuel 15, where Saul spares King Agag, um, only for a minute, he does end up killing him, but he's, the, the Lord says to go in and wipe out uh, the, nation of, the nation of King Agag, kill everyone, don't save anything, don't save any cattle, don't save any resources, and King Saul says that he's got a better way, and uh, he goes in and he wipes out everybody but King Agag, and uh, he spares King Agag temporarily. The Lord comes in. Uh, Samuel shows up there, obviously, and rebukes Saul for his disobedience to the Lord. Um, kind of obvious disobedience. And Saul is just like, like always, when we're caught in our sin, we justify our sin. We say, but we did it for this reason. But we got this. We got this. And the Lord says, look, I said this. You didn't do it. That's disobedience. Um, Saul's confronted with his sin, and King Agag is slain. Now, Follow all the way to Esther chapter four, uh, Esther chapter three. Excuse me. After the Babylonian captivity, after the Persian conquering of Babylon, of Babylon we once again get an Agagite, and they say the the Jewish um, the Jewish philosophers believe that Haman was a descendant of Agag. This was a direct descendant. He was a royal bloodline. So he wasn't just some dude who worked his way up into the palace of of Shushan and got in King Harris' good side, but in fact was probably someone who was of noble royal birth, who was attached to the kingdom and uh, then worked his way up. And verse number one, or only one verse in, starts off with King Ahasuerus promoting Haman. At this point, right, we don't know that Haman's this evil, horrible man that's going to do these horrible things. Right now, we just know that he is someone uh, of, uh, of this descent that King Ahasuerus has promoted. Verse number two. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. Uh, the king had commanded that people bow and reverence Haman because of his authority. His position was so high. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. This is, once again, Haman Verses Mordecai, verse number three. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Why aren't you obeying what the king said? Why aren't you bowing? Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, <coughs> excuse me, of Ahasuerus, <coughs> even the people of Mordecai. In the first month, that is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr, that is the lot before Haman, from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the king Adar. So pause. Haman demands reverence. Mordecai does not give it. Now, 
Do we know why Mordecai doesn't bow? Not really. The Bible says that he was a Jew, but that wasn't really any reason not to bow. This was not a um, religious bowing. This was not a worship. This was pretty common practice in the courts back in the day. Um, the men that the king promoted, you were supposed to show reverence as you'd bow to any king. And he refused to bow. Maybe it was because he didn't believe uh, because of the history between the Agagites and the um, Israelites. We don't really know, but we know he wasn't bowing, and we knew that it made um, Haman angry. It, his wrath was upon him. In fact, his wrath was so angry that he wanted to kill Mordecai. But what does it say he just wanted to kill Mordecai? The Bible actually says that he sees Mordecai, and he says he doesn't pay him reverence. He's full of anger, and he says, you're not worth killing just you. In fact, I'm going to kill all of you. Mordecai was not worth just the time to kill just him. He says it's not worth his, his time, so he's going to kill all the Jews. So Haman begins this plot to eradicate the Jewish population. Haman is patient, right? We're going to talk about this in a sec. But Haman casts lots to determine whether, uh, for the timing of when he should approach the king to kill all the Jews. He basically, for a year, the Bible says, if you track down these months, uh, for a year he's casting lots, trying to figure out uh, supernaturally when the lots would say was a good time for him to start his plan to kill all the Jews. Pretty twisted guy. Um, pretty supernatural guy. Pretty twisted guy. Pretty evil guy. Verse number 8. And Haman, once he received the lot that he was willing to do, Remember, there's a five-year gap between Queen Esther being named Queen and right now. Five years are going by. So who knows how long he was casting lots. Um, for a year at least, there it says. In verse number 8, And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There are certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they thy king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. This is him saying, there is a people among us, talking about the Jewish people, they don't follow our rules, they're different from us, and it's not good for them to be here, so we need to kill them. Verse number 10, and the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. And the king said unto Haman, the silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Just see the danger in those words. Verse number 12, then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants, and to the governors that were over every province, and to the rulers of every people of every province, according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, in the name of king Ahasuerus, was it written and sealed with the king's ring. This order to kill all the Jews was official by the sealing of the king's ring. Verse number 13. And the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause, to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women. And one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, excuse me, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published Unto all people, they should be ready against that day. The post went out, verse number 15, being hastened by the king's commandment. And the decree was given to Shushan in the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city Shushan was perplexed. Let's pray and we will jump into our message. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for letting us come together for an awesome 9 a.m. service, uh, a good 10.30 as well as we start. Lord, help the, the Word of God to do something in our hearts. Lord, help us not to be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Um, and help our baby dedication tonight, Lord, everything you've got planned for us. Lord, just be with us. Um, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, 
as well as Esther chapter 2 ended, right? As well as a beauty pageant can go, it went. As well as a plot to save the king went, it went well. Mordecai is promoted. Esther's queen, as beautiful and great as Esther chapter 2 is, is as bad as chapter 3 goes. The story starts off with the promotion of Haman, and apparently, turns out, who knew, Haman is a genocidal maniac who wants to wipe out all the Jews. Is it because Mordecai didn't bow? I doubt it. Was that maybe the catalyst that started it? Probably that was the catalyst that started the, I'm going to kill all the Jews. And all of a sudden we go from, in our title this morning, a beauty pageant to genocide just like that. Just like that. If you look at Esther chapter 3, it's really, it's the introduction of evil. It's the introduction of our villain, like I said. Um, but it's really just a manifesto of evil. It gives us a detailed look on how evil operates and what it looks like in real life because of how evil Haman was. Now, evil. There's a few things I kind of wrote down about it in this chapter. Number one, evil is appealing. Verse number one, evil was appealing enough to King Ahasuerus that he saw Haman. He saw the man Haman was. I don't think Haman was, I don't think Haman was trying to be tricky. I don't think he was trying to hide. He saw the, the evil that he was, and he promoted him, right? The reason we deal with evil, the reason we struggle with sin, the reason, we, the reason why evil is what it is in our lives is because it has appealing factors. But also, evil runs deep. Like we said earlier, the, the Agagites, the Amalekites versus the Israelites is a rivalry, a feud, and anger between nations that goes deep, right? Evil is not just something that pops up here and there. It's not something flippant, but it's something that runs deep in our lives, deep in our history, deep in our generations. Verse number five, evil resides in prideful people. Evil resides in prideful people. Verse number five, the reason that this started, the catalyst to this genocidal order was because Mordecai would just not bow to Haman. And that affected Haman's pride so much that he decided the only solution was to kill all the Jews. You want to know evil, look at pride. Pride is evil. As evil, as disgusted as we are by evil, as we, we see things on the news, we see these unrighteous, we see these wicked things, and we say, man, that's terrible. What does the world come to? And yet our hearts are full of pride. Our church is full of pride. Pride is evil. If you want to see the symptom of evil, you want to know whether evil is present, a symptom of evil is pride. Pride. Verse number six, evil will not just settle for you. Evil will not just settle for you. Haman saw Mordecai, could have just killed him right there, probably had the authority, probably had the right, but he said, no, I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to kill all of you. He paints, evil paints with a broad brush. Verse number seven, evil's willing to be patient. Evil's willing to be patient. It says that Haman cast lots. He didn't just go in. He didn't just get angry by what Mordecai did and then run to King Ahasuerus and say, look, we got to kill these Jews. No, he was willing to take the time to cast lots and wait for some supernatural whatever to tell him what to do. He was willing to wait. Evil's willing to wait if it thinks it can get what it wants. Evil is patient. Verse number nine, evil is willing to spend if it thinks there's going to be good return on investment. If, if you look at what Haman does, he goes to the king and he says, look, if it pleases you, I want to do this, this, and this. And guess what? I'll give 10,000 pieces of silver out of my own money. Kind of shows you his background as well, the fact that he has this money, probably of a royal lineage. And he says, I'll give 10,000 pieces of silver to make sure to guarantee that this is done on this one day when we want to eradicate the entire Jewish population. I will do what's willing. I'm willing to spend. Evil's willing to spend. Evil's willing to spend because it believes that it will get its return. Verse number 13, evil seeks total destruction. If you look at what the letter said, it said to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, everyone. Evil is evil because it wants total destruction. Total destruction of us, total destruction of our families, total destruction of our churches, total destruction of everything. Evil wants it completely and utterly. 
Verse number 15, evil breeds confusion. It's very, the, t- the way that it's poetic, the way this chapter ends. They pass this law, they send out these letters, this, this mandate is made that on this day, coming up, one year from now, all the Jews will be eradicated. And the Bible says that King uh, Hasawaris and Haman sit down and they have a drink. And then it says that the city was perplexed. The city was confused. Evil had bred confusion. Now, while let's talk about evil. Well, you need to know what evil looks like because you need to realize that evil is actively working against you in your life. Whether it's the natural evils, whether it's the, the things like natural disasters, whether it's, the, uh, whether it's the moral evils, the sin and wickedness, whether it's the supernatural evils of the, the, the principalities, the powers, all the things, these things are working against us. And we need to be aware of them because evil is against us. However, listen, you are not evil. You are not evil. Those of us that have been saved, those of us that have been made righteous, those of us that have been, have been transformed, we are not evil. We may do evil things. We may be surrounded by evil. We may be influenced by evil, but we are not evil. In fact, we are a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says this. I want you to bear with me as I read it. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away because, all, behold, all things are become New, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christian, celebrate the fact that you are a new creature. You're new. You've been saved. You've been transformed. You are no longer the evil that was within. The sin has been transformed. You've been justified. You've been, the, the, the Jesus' blood has been applied to you. You are made righteous. Celebrate that. But also, listen, some of you have not experienced that. Listen, some of you are battling with life. And you feel like you're battling sin. And you feel like sin has strongholds on you. And the reason sin is winning the fight in you is because you have not been made a new creature you're lost you may have gone to church you may have attended church you may be here this morning you may have done good things you may be a good person your dad may be a preacher your mom may be a preacher your grandma may be i don't know everybody may be a preacher in your life you may be surrounded by good people by christian people but you have not been made a new creature you've not been transformed by the blood of jesus and your life's a mess, your battle's a mess, your sin's a mess, your struggle's a mess, and you're frustrated, and you're frustrated, and you said, church isn't working the way I believe church is supposed to work. And the reason it may not be working for you is because you've not made a new creature. Me and Coleman were talking this morning, I feel like there was a spirit in the 9 a.m. service of someone who was lost, willingly lost, willingly aware of their lack of salvation, but walked away lost. Friend, don't leave here today lost. Stop fighting fights that have already been won. God's made us new creatures. That's a celebration, but it's also a warning to those that have not been saved. The reason you struggle with evil is because you have a heart of evil. Because Jesus has not transformed you. Because you've not believed. You may have gone to church. You may have been a good person. You may drop a check in the, in, in the black boxes. You may do whatever you check your little boxes. You have not been transformed by the blood of Jesus, so your battle will continue. You'll walk out of here. You'll hear a message about that. We're talking about the battle of good versus evil. You'll walk out of here fighting the fight, thinking you're fighting a fight, but your fight's completely different because you do not know Jesus. No wonder you're struggling. No wonder, no wonder worship is empty. No wonder church doesn't make sense. No wonder the struggle is so real because you were lost. Don't attend church lost. 
Don't be, leave here today lost. God is too big. God is too good for you to continue to be lost. And salvation is too amazing. The gospel is too real for you not to experience it. So experience it. Today, let today be the day. The Bible says let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day. Someone in here, people in here. I'm not, I'm not just hounding because I want someone to say, hey, I got saved. I'm burdened for your eternity. I'm burdened for your life. I'm burdened for your eternity. I'm burdened for your now because you're living life pretending to be something you're not. And it's a struggle and it's hard because you've not been made a new creature. And you're continuing to go to church. And you're continuing to check boxes. And you're packing, you're packing Christmas child boxes. And you're doing these things. And you're coming to church. You're, you're not saved. You need salvation. God wants you. He's pursuing you. We want, we want you to be part of us. Turn to him. Repent of your sins. Humble yourself. Confess. Believe on the name of Jesus so that you can be a new creature. So that you can experience the transformation of Jesus. But for those of us that have, those of us that are saved, those of us that are new creatures, we are not evil. But we are often persuaded by evil. And that's what leads us to our that's what leads us to our whole sermon. And we're we've only got like 15 minutes left, so we're about to fly. I, I keep getting told that I'm talking too fast. It's y'all's fault for only having an hour service. I love it too, but I'm gonna be talking fast, so buckle up. That brings us to our main character. I don't see us as Haman. I, I, if you if you read this and you see yourself as Haman, brother, you really gotta get saved. Like you're an evil person, like come get saved. I don't see this as Haman. I don't see us as Esther. None of y'all are winning beauty pageants. Kevin, maybe, maybe Kevin's got shot. I, not, I don't see us as Esther. I don't see us as Haman. You know who I see us as? You know who I see myself as? You know who I see Christians as? King Hasawaris. We're the man. Chapter 2, King Hasawaris, persuaded by the young men, it says. The young men in his course persuade him to find a queen. God uses that. We get Esther. Ch later down the line, we see God use Persuasion, King Ahasuerus, persuaded to save the Jewish race. Chapter 3, King Ahasuerus, persuaded to order genocide on an entire race. Here's the thing. King Ahasuerus is a passive man surrounded by evil. And when passive people are, are around, when evil is present among passive people, evil will win. The person we are in this chapter is King Ahasuerus because for many of us, we do not have the foundation of the word of God, the foundation of salvation, the foundation of discipleship, the foundation of growth. So our decisions and our directions are persuaded. Listen, teenager, you're, you're persuaded. When you're, when you're hanging out with your good friends, you're doing good. When you're with your bad friends, you're doing bad. Why? Because you are pushed around by the people around you. King Ahasuerus, the most powerful person in the world, was the weakest man in the world because he just did whatever around him, whatever anyone around him wanted to. And for us, it benefits us sometimes, right? Esther chapter 2, that's a benefit. We're thankful that King, Esther chapter 2, I'm thankful that he's passive. I'm thankful that he's just banished his wife randomly because we got Esther, right? And we got to preserve the Jewish race. Esther, after 4, 5, and 6, when he comes in and saves them, hey, that's great. Uh, thankful for that when, when he ends up hanging Mordecai. Plot twist, if you haven't read the story. Mordecai dies. Haman dies. Mordecai lives. Haman dies. He hangs Haman, right? We're thankful for it then. Esther chapter 3, you see the danger of passivity. You see the danger of not having foundation on the word of God. 
And King Ahasuerus was pushed and prodded by evil. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves in the same spot. We'll find ourselves in the same spot. This is the thesis of the message. Evil is working against you. But the Lord is pursuing you. So you have two options. You're either vigilant in the fight, vigilant, excuse me, in the fight against evil, or we are passive like King Ahasuerus and allow evil to come in, infiltrate our lives, and we'll find ourselves, beginning of this chapter, how does it start? He promotes Haman. End of the chapter, he's drinking with a genocidal maniac after just ordering ethnic cleansing of an entire race. Evil wants you. Mom, dad, evil wants you. Husband, wife, evil wants you. Evil's pursuing you actively. What does it want to do? Number one, evil wants to be elevated to a place of influence in your life. Verse number one. And we got to really move. After these things, the king has aware promote Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agai, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. Haman, I guarantee, did not present himself as a genocidal maniac day one in court. When they're first around, when the princes are around, when the princesses are, I don't know, princes, I don't know what court looks like. I'm just thinking like TV right now. But when court's around, I doubt he was sitting there like, hey, I know I just got here, but I think we should kill millions of people for literally no reason. No, you know what he probably was? He probably sat down. He was probably quiet the first couple years. He's probably taking it in. He was probably learning. He was probably sitting. He was probably absorbing. He was probably presenting as a good guy. He probably had good ideas. He comes from a royal line. He's a pretty smart guy, obviously. He's promoted. He probably looked like exactly what King Ahasuerus thought he needed. He sees Haman. He sees Haman making these statements. He sees Haman doing these things. He says, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, that's what I need. Oh, this. Oh, that. And so what does King Hasuerus do? He grabs Haman, he promotes him, he pulls him up. All of a sudden we wake up one day and King Hasuerus has promoted Haman to the most powerful man in the land all because King Haman was pretty, pretty good guy, pretty smart guy. Got, I mean, Haman was a pretty good guy, pretty smart guy, got where he wanted to be. And then once Haman had gained the influence, once Haman had gained the power, guess what? His true nature was revealed and he is an evil, evil man. The devil is smart. The devil will make evil as appealing to you as necessary. You'll take it, you'll grab it, you'll swallow it, and all of a sudden you'll wake up one day far from God, eaten and destroyed by the evil that you one day accepted, all because you chose it back then. And once it's gained power, once it's gained influence, its true nature is revealed. That's exactly what Haman did. He bided his time, he waited, got influence, and then took advantage of it. This happens all the time. I see it in youth. I see it in here. I see it all the time. You see someone who, it happens in dating, it happens in jobs where you something that happens good. Oh, I have a boyfriend. I have a girlfriend. Oh, I got a good new job. And it starts out well, and then all of a sudden, these things start taking our time. They start taking our energy. start taking our effort. All of a sudden, that's something, something that may have been good, something that may have been beneficial to you, may have been beneficial to your family. It may have been beneficial to you as a person. Maybe you're a teenager. You get a boyfriend, a girlfriend, and it's fun. He's a good guy. His parents used to, everybody, that's what they always say. When, I, when a teenager comes to church, I'm like, hey, uh, and they bring a boy or a girl. I'm like, hey, you know how what's his like background where do you go to church and she's like well his parents used to go because we're in statesville everybody's parents used to go you know what i'm saying and i'm like well where's he going now they're like well they're kind of in and out they're kind of i'm like okay you know kind of worry him but we'll, we'll see how it goes and all of a sudden they fall in love and guess what who you date's who you marry so all of a sudden they're engaged all of a sudden they're married all of a sudden 10 15 years on the line they got three or four kids and they're so far from god because they accepted something as a small good thing and they wake up and it's got complete influence over their life and god's far from it but that's how the devil works. That's how evil works. 
I highly doubt King Ahasuerus went to bed like, I'm going to order genocide today. Nope, but he did go to bed thinking, hmm, Haman's a good dude. Did he look at Haman and compare it to the word of God? Obviously not. Because the word of God didn't exist yet. The Bible, the, Bible, the word did. Thank you. He didn't, he, he didn't judge Haman by a spiritual standard. He judged it by a beneficial standard. When you judge the things in your life by what will benefit you rather than what God has for you, those things that may benefit you in the now will destroy you in the future. Because they're swallowable now. But if they're not of God, there's no good. That boyfriend, that girlfriend, not of God, no good. That job that's pulling you from church, pulling you from family, distancing you from your spouse, oh, but, you got, oh, but I'm making good money, not of God. That hobby that's become an addiction to you, that's all you pour into over and over and over again. You say, well, I need, I need to release. I need that time away. Sure, great. When it starts to tear away God's place, it's evil. I don't care how good it was in the beginning. It's evil. Evil wants influence. Number one, evil wants to be elevated to a place of influence. Number two, and we move so, so quickly, so quickly. Evil wants us to relinquish our roles and responsibilities. Once again, Haman goes to king. He casts lots. The time is right. The, the, whatever he was looking for in the lots comes to pass. He says, now's the time. He goes to king of house Warris and he, he pleads. Right? Haman's smart. He says, look, there's these people on the land. They disobey your laws. They have their own laws. He's talking about the Jewish laws, of course, things, things that do not affect in a negative way. He says, look, they're, they're, they're doing this, they're doing that, and they're, they're very bad to be around, and we need to do something for them. And King Ahasuerus, a passive man, a man who has no standing, has no authority, has no strong biblical ground to stand on, says, hey, man, whatever you want to do. So he takes off his ring. He throws it to Haman. All of a sudden, Haman has the seal, the power to do whatever he would want as if he were the king, all because of King Ahasuerus' passivity, all of a sudden Haman, a genocidal evil man, has the power to do whatever he wants, all because King Ahasuerus gave it to him. God gave King, the Bible says in Proverbs 21, that the, hand of the, the heart of the, of the king is in the hand of the Lord. King Ahasuerus, the only reason he had the power he had was because of God. He was given that role, he was given that responsibility, and when, as soon as he got it, he thought so little, listen, he thought so little of the roles and responsibility that God gave him that he was willing to toss him to the first person that he deemed, that he deemed good for it. He thought so little of his role and responsibility that he did not care if someone else took it. You know what evil wants to do? Evil wants you to give up the roles and responsibilities that God has given you. The role of husband, the role of father, the role of mother, the role of wife, the role of daughter, the role of son, employee, employer. These things that God has given you, the devil has value in them, but he will deem them as less value to you, so you're willing to give them up. And guess what? As soon as you give them up, he'll snatch them. So many dads, so many dads, so many moms will go live. It's like this when they're teenagers. It's like people, parents refuse to adapt themselves to speak to their teenagers. So they have these teenagers, and they're like, I have no idea how to talk to them. Well, you could try one way. Um, so they live life with these teenagers, and they have no idea who their teenagers are. They ride in school with them all day. They go to, they, they work, they're at home all day. They're together all the time, but they have no conversation. They have no idea who they are. And all of a sudden, there's no father. Well, I'm the, I pay, you pay the bills. You're not the dad. So you do all these things, and this role of fatherhood has been left void in their lives. You may be paying their bills, but you're not doing any kind of fathering to them. So, guess what? You relinquish the role, the devil will take it. If you don't want to raise your kids, someone else will. 
and it's not going to be the way you want it to be done. It's definitely not going to be the standard the Bible set. But someone's willing to do it. Spouse is the same way. You're unwilling to take to, to lead and take the role that the Bible has laid out for you and your, and your family, in your marriage, someone else will step in and do it. Someone else will be what your spouse needs. Someone else will be what your kids need. Someone else will be what your employee needs because these roles are like a vacuum that will be filled. But God's given them to you. So as believers, listen, we need to stand up and fill the roles that God has given us. Passionately, not passively. Many of us take the roles as the responsibilities. Many of them take them, we take them as burdens. We take them as nuisance. We take them as something that is part of us, that is not, that, that's just part of our lives. But instead, God says, we ha- I have given you this, and you have no value to it. And Jeremy Brown talked to me, he came to me this morning, he said, man, that was good. He said this, and you can't go back and do it again. You can't go back and do it again. You can't raise your kids again. You can't restart your marriage you can't restart that job. You can't, all these things, you can't, how about this? How about this role? Your church membership. How about that responsibility you've been given as a part of this church? Can't go back and relive it. Take it seriously. Take, if God has deemed it good enough to give to you, it matters. Listen, God is too big and you're too small for him to be wrong and you to be right. He's given you these roles. He's given you these responsibilities. Take them seriously. Take them seriously. We move so quickly. Verse number one, the evil wants to, evil wants to be elevated to a place of influence in your life. And once it's elevated, it's going to rule it. Evil wants us to relinquish our roles and responsibility. Evil wants you. Evil wants you. Evil wants you to elevate anything other than God. It wants you to negate your God-given responsibilities. And thirdly and lastly, evil wants you to turn a blind eye to the reality around you. Verse number 15, this is such a, it's just like, literally it's a storybook ending. It's like I can see the curtains closing in a play where the Haman and King Ahasuerus are sitting there drinking as the world around them is receiving these letters of genocide. They literally say, in one year on this day, we're going to kill all the Jews. And all the Jews are sitting there like, Dang, what? And they're like, well, I guess we're going to kill you all. And the whole city is living in confusion. It's living perplexed. It's living confused all because, listen, evil brings confusion. The only reality that evil can live in healthily is a confused reality. Because evil clearly brings destruction and righteousness clearly brings peace. So in order for the devil to make both these things untrue, he has to what? Confuse everything. He has to muddy the water. So... When we embrace evil, we're embracing confusion. The devil wants us to live in a state of confusion. Wants to be per- they were perplexed by the decisions of the king because it's really not a good political decision. It's really not a good kingly decision just to kill this big part of your population. But evil breeds confusion. And King Ahasuerus was so influenced by evil that he was blind to his own repercussions of his decisions. He was so blind that he was literally sitting down having a drink with Haman as all this went down. The reality of sin is destruction. And if you do not open your eyes, you will not see it. The reality of the gospel is restoration. And Jesus will open your eyes to that. King Ahasuerus was blind to the reality that this evil mandate that Haman was pushing, what it would bring to his kingdom because his eyes were closed. So what's the sermon? We're done. Matt, you can play. What's the sermon? 
we need to open our eyes. Evil is active against us. Evil wants you. It doesn't just want you. It wants your influence so it can take the people around you. It doesn't just want to take them. It wants to utterly destroy them. It wants the women. It wants the children. It wants all of them. Evil is a real prevalent thing. It's all around us. It's all around us. But listen, we are victorious in the fight against it. So, so what do we do? Why are we just, hey, watch out for evil? No, no, no. Don't just watch out for evil. Actively fight against it. You've been given the armor of God. You've been given the sword of the Lord. You've been given the fruit of the Spirit. You've been given the ability to walk in the Spirit. And you've been given the ability to, when you, fest, when you mess up, when evil gets around you, you can repent, you can be restored, and you can worship. And then you can take out your sword and fight against the evil around you. Our, our city, our church, our country needs moms and dads willing to take out the sword and fight the evil against them instead of passively go to sleep. So much of our country is asleep to the evil around them because, listen, it's easier to go to sleep than to go to war. Let's think, I mean, uh, war's tiring. Life is tiring, much less fighting. It's much easier to sit down, have a drink, close your eyes. So that's what we do. That's what Christians do. That's what lost people do. They're so, they're so blinded by the reality. Even, even when they see the evil, it makes them angry. Their solution is not righteous anger. Instead, it's sleepy, sleepy passivity. Sleepy passivity. And we allow the world around us to pass us by. And we're cool with it. We're cool with it because our eyes are closed. Wake up. Open your eyes. Take out your sword. Fight against the evil that's been given you fight and how, how do we fight we fight with the word of God we fight we're taking stands we fight by not being able to be persuaded by whatever's around us by whatever's around us so many of our men especially we we once we get the life that we think we want or need we allow whatever else is around us to do whatever it wants whatever our wife says we do whatever our family says we do whatever our boss says we do because we kind of got our thing we kind of got our thing little we got it kind of niched out and we're kind of good with it and then we allow the world to just kind of blow us around and the bible says stand on the truths of the word of god those things matter your responsibilities your roles the things that god's given you they matter so embrace them take an inventory of your life what has influence if it's evil reject it if it's not god if it's not of god reject it Embrace your roles and responsibilities and then open your eyes to the evil around you so that you can actively fight it. And then the, the, the last thing is this. If you're not saved, if you feel like you're fighting a battle that's, that can't be won, it's because it's true. You can't win that battle. No wonder you're getting your butt kicked. You're losing. But you don't have to be losing after today. You can be saved today. You can trust Christ today. So do that. Allow God to make you a new creature. Let's stand, eyes uh, closed, heads bowed. Matt's going to sing. And it, let's just pray. Let's just do business with God. Don't allow church to be something where you're at. Allow it to be something you're participating in.